This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley, and this week, one of Atlanta's best-kept secrets moved into the spotlight with the unveiling of a series of markers that chart the path students took on the Atlanta University Center campus to protest injustice and segregation. Our guest in studio is the man behind the project, Atlanta City Council member Michael Julian Bond. Tell us about these markers and the work that it took to make this happen. Well, thank you, Condice. I I really appreciate the opportunity to be here on WSB. This project was really born out of my personal experiences uh, growing up uh, in the civil rights movement, being a child of the civil rights movement. You know, back in 2010, uh, the the Committee on Appeal for Human Rights and the Atlanta Student Movement Committee. These are the people who had uh, engaged in the 1960 student movement and set it off. Uh, they had an anniversary, and so we changed the name of a section of Fair Street to honor them. And out of that uh, effort, it, it just c- kind of came to the presence of mind that not many people even know that there was a student movement in Atlanta, that there was this type of uh, civil uh, disobedience being practiced at any time because particularly if you come to Atlanta in the last 10, 20, even almost 30 years. And so I said, well, there's got to be a way to try to commemorate uh, what they've done, highlight what they've done, uh, because the Atlanta student movement actually had an effect on the 1960 presidential election of John F. Kennedy. So in a sense, unlike other movements in other cities, which were you know, very, very important, uh, the Atlanta student movement could actually say that it affected the history and director, direction of the country in some ways. And in what way did that happen? Well, what happened is that the, once the students began their activities uh, in the late winter and spring of 1960, Uh, The business community, the old guard, African-American community uh, were trying to work a compromise with the students. And so they tried to convince them to hold off on the opportunities. Mayor uh, Hartsfield uh, felt that he needed more time to negotiate with the white business owners to convince them that desegregation was the way. So they were asking for, I believe, a six-month moratorium. Well, the students didn't want to go for that. They had been protesting at that point for about two months. Uh, staging demonstrations all around downtown Atlanta at key locations. And those who were natives would probably remember Rich's uh, department store, which was the department store, not just in Atlanta, but in the southeastern United States. Uh, They had ongoing protests there. So there was a meeting at at Warren Memorial Church uh, to try to convince the students to stand down. Uh, A.T. Walden, who was one of the first black attorneys in the state of Georgia and here in Atlanta, uh, was negotiating on behalf of the students. The students felt kind of betrayed by him because they didn't want to compromise. But then Martin Luther King, Dr. King, uh, was summoned to the church. He wasn't a part uh, because if most people don't realize that the African-American leadership asked him not to demonstrate in Atlanta. They sent him a letter. And his father... They sent Dr. King a letter? They and sent said, Dr. King a letter asking him not to bring his demonstrations to Atlanta. And why did they do that? Well, because... Atlanta had a type of detente between the white business community and the leadership in the African-American community. 
there was a lot of litigation that went on around uh, public accommodations in Atlanta, but there was no direct action, no real direct protest. And it was usually either through litigation or negotiation. And so those who... So in a sense, the city was working through it the right way? Well, in a sense, you you could say it was the right way, but it it, it was a way that was slow. Oh. Uh, It may have been somewhat deliberate, uh, but by the time the children of the greatest generation came around, and these are the kids in the 1960s who were in college and in high school, uh, they had lost patience with that dynamic. And so they had asked Dr. King and his father, Daddy King actually was one of the signers of the letter, not to demonstrate. So when he came to Warren uh, Church, to the church uh, reputedly was packed to the rafters. Uh, you know, the students booed all of the African-American leaders that, sh- that, that, were, that were there, and that included uh, Daddy King, William Holmes Borders, uh, A.T. Walden, um, Samuel Baycoat. I mean, just uh, anybody that, that was a part of the establishment, they, 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 they just booed their idea. But when Dr. King came in, apparently something mythic happened, and for those who were there, they said that he gave pr- pretty much the greatest speech that they ever he- heard him give. And that is beyond the I have a dream speech that he would later give years later. And he convinced the students, he said, look, if you take the compromise, uh, I, if they break their promise, I will demonstrate with you. And so that was enough to satisfy the students. So you fast forward to October of 1960. Uh, of course, the business community didn't keep their promise. <laughs> you know, the, the, the deal was, was broken. So the students had begun to... Uh, demonstrate again, and they were leading a demonstration at the downtown Riches, which is now the Sam Nunn building, for those who aren't familiar, in downtown. And, of course, Dr. King was arrested with the others, and he was quickly taken from the Atlanta jail to the DeKalb County jail and then whisked off to Reedsville. And no one knew on the outside, were associated with his family or the movement, what had happened to him. Uh, Vice President Nixon at the time was running for president against Senator Kennedy, uh, both campaigns had considered reaching out to Mrs. King or various levels of involvement. Now think now think about this. This was a time when probably 90% or better of African-Americans were Republicans. They were Lincoln Republicans. And so when Nixon didn't act or make a gesture, it opened the door for Senator Kennedy to, to do so. Now, he didn't get Dr. King out of jail necessarily, but he reached out to... Uh, Coretta Scott King, and so that impressed uh, Daddy King, who had been a Lincoln Republican, and he changed his mind about uh, John F. Kennedy because he had previously spoken, you know, in in doubt of Kennedy's candidacy, and that just set off a domino effect across the country. So African Americans, for the first time, switched to the Democratic Party and have been there ever since, which changed the course of American history because you know Lincoln. Even though their race was tight, you know, Nixon was favored to win that election. And so Dr. King, uh, his involvement there, after after that, uh, he became very much involved uh, with the students. And at, at, along our history trail, we feature a, a monument at Hurt Park down adjacent to Georgia State University where a major uh, civil rights demonstration took place after the March on Washington uh, in 1963. And we actually have footage of Dr. King's speech uh, from that time. And it's an interesting speech uh, because he talks about what Atlanta must do. 
to be right. Not talking about the nation, not talking about our countrymen, but what Atlanta must do. And he talks about that Atlanta must have an Amos moment. You know, and it, it is really gripping and something that everybody uh, needs to see. So now we have these series of markers. Where are they and, and who do they celebrate? Well, they, they, they celebrate the, the, the key historic points of the Atlanta student movement from a time period of 1960 to 1965. And so it goes beyond the initial uh, group of students who gathered at the old Yates and Milton at the corner of Chestnut and Fair Street, which is now uh, Atlanta Student Movement Boulevard and James P. Brawley Drive, uh, they, they, they gathered together to organize. And so the markers stretch from the, around the Atlanta University Center area as far as over to the Hilton Hotel in, in downtown and it's, it's scattered sites around downtown, around the Federal Building, around City Hall, uh, around the bus station, uh, where the old bus station used to be, what is now the, around the, the Andy Young Park, down near uh, Andy Young International Boulevard. So they're, they're scattered where the students had, had performed their demonstrations. And so each marker details uh, the history of that location. And the key feature of these markers is that they're digitally interactive. Uh, if you, when, you, uh, when you approach them on their face at the bottom right-hand corner, there is a QR code that you can scan with your phone or your iPad or whatever type of device, similar device, and it, that will then take you to a web page where you can access a synopsis of the history that's taken place as told by those who were actually there. So, I mean, imagine if you could go to uh, the Lincoln Memorial and actually hear Lincoln's voice. That would be something. That would be something. We go to Washington Monument and hear Washington address you. Well, this is the only place in the country where you can go where those who actually were a part of the history will tell you exactly what happened. And it'll be that way forever. So our descendants, our children, children's children, will be able to hear from the people who actually made it, you know, created uh, the impetus for the slogan, Atlanta, the city too busy to hate. Uh, and so you'll actually be able to hear from these folks who were there. How much did this project cost and where did we get the money to support it? Because with the website and the technology and the interviews, how did you manage to make all of these things come together? Well, I will say on the outset, the, com the commission that we formed to rename the street, we kept intact. Uh, we had a couple of historians, uh, local historians attached, uh, Miss Velma Fan, uh, who was a really good local historian. And Tamiko Brown Nagan uh, later came on the project. She she wrote the definitive book, uh, Courage to Dissent, about the history of the civil rights movement in Atlanta, and so she became our finalizing expert. Uh, so this project, uh, I was very naive when I started this project. I thought it would probably be very easy to sit people down and just say, "Hey, talking to the camera, tell us what you you thought," and then you know, kind of edit it and get it on a web page, uh, but. Actually, you know, I, I have gotten a, le a lesson in film school you know, <laughs> trying, trying to do this. Uh, but it probably cost us from 2010 to now maybe about $200,000 uh, to get done. And largely most of that is the video and the editing. I had no idea how much uh, editing uh, films, how expensive it actually is. You and want how it to look right. Right. You want it to look right and how complicated it actually is. Uh, but we have, fi we have 15 different sites uh, 
and we interviewed over 100, I believe it was about 110 people uh, that we could find. And I'm still running into people every day saying, hey, I was a part of this movement. I, you know, I want to tell my story. And so we got to figure out a way to get all their stories in. But one of the lucky things that we found is that the we found archival footage of people who have been involved that talked about the student movement. And I've got to thank the Atlanta uh, Fulton County Library System. They actually did a series uh, on their channel in the 1990s where they impaneled uh, individuals who had been involved in the student movement. And so we've got footage uh, from that, people who've long passed away. Uh, and also got to thank uh, Senator Vincent Fort. Now, when he was working on his uh, master's, part of a, a part of his research was the, the Atlanta student movement. So we have even, and that was probably back, I believe, in 1989 and 1990, the Fulton County Library films were made in the late 90s. So he even has interviews with Dr. Mays, uh, Dr. Clement, who was president of CAU, and even more people from that period who have passed away, but it's on audio. So when you go to the marker, you have access to all of that. Uh, you'll be able to hear the story of that particular location. The way the page is designed is that every person who has been interviewed, regardless of which marker you go to, you can click on their name or their icon and you can hear their story You can hear, and you can hear the, the audio interviews in total. So it, it is a rich historical uh, experience. Uh, it would make a great afternoon, either on a bike or to walk, uh, to follow uh, the trail that the students went. And so we've got a marker out in front of Warren, we've got a marker out in front of the Atlanta Inquirer, a marker out in front of the Hollowell, uh, old Hollowell Law Firm, uh, where Howard Moore and Vernon Jordan um, you know, were, were, were there. And so it, it, it gives me goosebumps uh, to... Uh, to see this actually come to fruition. you got a very personal uh, connection to all of this as well. With so many new people to Atlanta, they may not know. Tell us your story. Well, my father, uh, Julian Bond, was one of the original three students who conceived the idea for the student movement. Uh, the person who conceived the idea was Lonnie King. He was a, a student at Morehouse. He had been in the military. He, so he was older, slightly older than most, uh, they they were at the Yates and Milton drugstore, which was kind of a combination drugstore and restaurant or sock hop, if you will, right there in the corner of the community in the, in the heart of the schools. And so Lonnie approached my dad and said, you know, have you seen this? He was showing him a newspaper article about the students who had sat in up in North Carolina. And, of course, my father was a little insulted because he says that the uh, College students ought to read a paper every day. So he was asking me, hey, do you read the newspaper? So once they got that clarified, uh, Lonnie asked my dad, said, do you think this will happen here? And my dad said, oh, of course it will happen here. I said, why don't we make it happen here? And so they decided to split up the uh, cafeteria and talk to the students there, and uh, along with another student by the name of, of uh, Joe Pierce, uh, who was also a Morehouse student. They gathered together and got students from, at that time it was Clark College, Atlanta University, Spelman College, Morehouse, Morris Brown, and the International uh, Theological Center. Um, make sure all of the institutions were represented and they began to form uh, what, what became the Committee on Appeal for Human Rights. What do you think young people today can learn from the civil disobedience exercise during the civil rights movement? 
Well, I think they could learn a, a, a tremendous amount. I mean, one of the things that people will learn as they follow this trail is that there was an awful lot of planning, an awful lot of practice uh, that went into staging these marches and demonstrations, but also a lot of screening of individuals. <laughs> you know, you just couldn't have anybody kind of show up and participate in the in the movement. These students were committed to nonviolence, uh, but they were also committed to projecting an image that they were, uh, you know, sane, civil, you know, equal participants in society, meaning that, you know, they, they always wore their their best dress when they protested. They wanted to project an image against what was the stereotype at the time about African young African-American youth, you know, and so they were very purposeful in their presentations. I think those movements today, like Black Lives Matter, I think they, they are effective movements, but I think at the same time, if you were to contrast what they did in 1960 to what they're doing today, uh, I think today, people put out on Facebook, hey, we're having a demonstration, come and join the demonstration. And there's no screening, and other than the organizers, there's really no preparation for what is going to happen. And so the, the potentiality is there for almost anything uh, to happen beyond what might be intended to happen. And I think probably one of the, one of the best things about documentaries, like what, I guess these are many documentaries that we've done, uh, or a documentary like Eyes on the Prize. But one of the best things about Eyes on the Prize is that it shows these demonstrations, it shows these people doing things all over the country. But one of the bad things about those documentaries is that they don't show the preparation. They don't show the phone calling. They don't show the meetings that show the organizer, all the preparation that, that kind of goes into it. And then the students knew, uh, or the, in general, or the civil rights movement folks who did demonstrate, they knew who their audience was. Their, their audience wasn't other African-Americans. It was the larger majority society that they were calling into question. And so they were calling the larger majority into question. And at the same time, you, you, you want to show your plight, but you don't want to alienate them to the point where they're not sympathetic. And so I think that today's generation could learn a lot uh, from those nuanced lessons that the uh, student movement and other movements like it uh, in the 1960s put on. What's your take on Colin Kaepernick and the protests surrounding him in the National Football League? Well, from what I've experienced and seen in, in civil rights, I think people need to hold fast. And one of the key elements of the student movement in Atlanta is that they were very clear about getting their message about, about what their movement was all about. That's why the appeal for human rights came about. It was uh, the college presidents had gathered them uh, you know, Dr. Mays, Dr. Clement, and so forth, uh, and James P. Brawley and others, and Dr. Manley at Spelman, to say, look, if you're going to demonstrate, don't just demonstrate so you can eat a sandwich or buy a milkshake at a lunch car- counter. Express your grievances in writing, and we'll, they got it published. And so that appeal was published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on one day and then went around the world. It got published in the New York Times, Harvard Crimson, you know, the library got read in the, into the Congressional Record and the Library of Congress. I think what's happened with Kaepernick is that those who are his detractors have co-opted his protests and have distorted his message. His message was about the, 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 the mistreatment of African Americans, but now somehow it's become about uh, whether or not you're loyal to the flag or if you're loyal to soldiers. 
And so that is actually a perversion of what the protest is all about. You know, I think what would could, could really help Kaepernick is for folks who are coming to his aid, who are taking that knee, to restate over and over again to define what the what his movement is actually about. And it reminds me about what about what people did to Muhammad Ali uh, when he spoke out against the Vietnam War. I uh, know this is Kaepernick's right to do that. This is right, not only as an individual, but as an American citizen. And then for other American citizens uh, to criticize him, to ostracize him, to punish him for exercising his right, to me, borders on fascism. It's a perversion of nationalism uh, that becomes tribalism. And so we have to guard against that. We are the greatest democracy in the world. And so we have to, we don't just protect the freedoms uh, so that we can say that. We protect those freedoms so that people like Kaepernick can demonstrate his, his personal right and freedoms in this country. And so any talk of criticizing him for exercising those freedoms need to be, uh, need to be squelched, in my, in, in my opinion. You know, I, I, I think it's wrong for uh, people, com- com- I mean, the NFL players are employees just like any other company. And so what you're saying, if you're telling the NFL players that they can't take a knee, they're telling folks in corporate America and in, in small businesses across the country that when you're at work, you can't exercise your constitutional rights. And that's something that we need to resist. So reset for us where our listeners can access the information about the Atlanta student movement on the West Side with the the markers that are erected and the history and the lessons that can be taken from all of that. Well, I think uh, the, the markers are located in and around the Atlanta University Center that are up and functioning now. The The phase two markers are actually erected, uh, but their digitization will come online in no, in November. And the, you can access it, through, access it through the city's webpage, uh, and you can see a map of where the markers are laid out, and you can follow the trail. So there are also signs that allow you to, if you're if you're biking or walking, to follow the trail of the markers uh, from end to end. And so in, in in the AU Center area and in downtown Atlanta, and I think people should try to come and see see these as as, as often as possible uh, because each marker has its own lesson. Each marker has its own uh, story to tell about a slice of Atlanta that helped made the Atlanta that we enjoy today. You know, Ivan Allen said in his book, if, you know, if it wasn't in part for the student movement, Atlanta would not be the city too busy to hate because they were able to coin that phrase because the business community ultimately did compromise uh, the movement was successful in a shorter period of time as it, as compared to other movements around the South. And so Atlanta was able to take advantage of its opinion, of its position uh, to be progressive you know, versus a Birmingham or a Montgomery or a Jacksonville. You know, there's an in- interesting uh, story that I heard Roy Barnes, the former governor, mention in a speech, and I copy it all the time. I'm not ashamed to admit it. But he said in the 1960s and 50s and 60s, all of the uh, Eisenhower Highway signs pointed toward Birmingham and Montgomery as the seat of the South. Now, all of those signs in the Southeast point towards Atlanta. 
And that's because Atlanta held itself out as a beacon for progress. Now, Atlanta wasn't perfect until, you know, absolutely today when we're sitting here today. It's still, it's still not perfect, but it's closer to that perfection because it was progressive. And so Atlanta was able to position itself to gain the northern investment of businesses who were looking to move their businesses south at the time because it was cheaper for them to do so, as opposed to moving it to Birmingham, who was the king of the south. Alabama, you know, the steel industry, the industry there, uh, they, they were the leader in the South at the time. And, and Atlanta was a, you know, it was a, a, a decent sized, mid-sized city, but it wasn't, it wasn't a Birmingham. And so now we've, we've exceeded and passed them uh, because we've been progressive, because we've been the city too busy to hate. And these are the stories that people need to learn so that they know from whence we came. Atlanta City Council member Michael Julian Bond, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you for having me. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.